by show of hands, how many here have seen a baby born, being born? Quite a few, and I know Dr. Ron here could probably put his hand up for every single one of us three times. Now, uh, many people claim that this is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Well, I was there to witness the birth of all three of my children. I was even forced to cut the cord for one of them. And I can stand here today telling you that it is not the most beautiful thing in the world. It is slimy. It is messy, it is bloody, it is long, and your wife is not in a good mood. As many of you already know, I'm not the best when it comes to medical things. Even in what a lot of people think are the easiest situations, I don't do well in. Uh, I actually had to drop out of Biology 30 because I couldn't handle the dissections. Uh, that was just too much for me. Uh, when I go to the doctor and he wants to check my blood pressure, I have to ask for a bed to lie down on. Uh, the last time I went to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor was examining my eyes, shining a light into my eyes, I passed out. I am not, actually, what, what's kind of funny about the whole thing, of all the medical professions, the one that I'm the most relaxed with is the dentist. For some reason, I lay there, I open my mouth, and he works on my mouth, and I'm kind of good with that. But uh, I know it's completely weird, but don't shine a light in my eye, because that just sends me over the top. Now, how many of you have ever seen someone born again? If you've had the opportunity to see someone born again, that, I can tell you, is one of the most beautiful things you will ever see. It doesn't mean that it's not also messy at times. It doesn't mean that it also doesn't have its share of pain. But seeing someone born again is a beautiful experience. We're going to look at a section in John chapter 3 today where Jesus uses this very phrase that we, especially in evangelical circles, know so well, the phrase of born again. It's John chapter 3, continuing on in these, this study through the Gospel of John. And it begins like this. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, Nicodemus was a man of high social standing. He was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee, one of the religious groups that adhered to the strictest adherence to the Jewish law. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a little bit like a supreme court of religious leaders, a group of people who would interpret between some of the difficult situations that were brought before him regarding the interpretation of religious rules and laws. Jesus has already gotten himself into a lot of trouble with these types of people in his ministry. 
he seems to be almost going out of his way to push the buttons of the religious establishment. He's acting like a king, proclaiming things, doing things, like cleansing the temple, in many ways proclaiming that he is a Davidic king. He not only is saying that, but he's equating himself with deity. He is someone who is gaining a larger and larger following. And so the religious establishment is not only seeing this guy as arrogant and as a blasphemer, but as a threat when more and more people start to follow him. He's a threat to the system, a possible problem for the established religious order that has been fleshed out between the Jews and the Romans. He has unorthodox interpretations of the scripture. In many regards, looking at the scripture and then saying that they're about himself. This didn't make many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day very happy. They saw in Jesus a heretic who was encouraging a gullible crowd to pledge their allegiance to him and therefore leading many people astray. But there were some religious leaders that didn't quite share this bias. They were struggling internally with who Jesus was and the message he was proclaiming. And yet they were in the minority. Nicodemus is one of these people. And we could see by reading the account that he had many questions for Jesus. Could he be right? Could some of the things that Jesus be saying be true? Could he possibly be the one that we've been waiting for? He has been doing miraculous signs. He has been saying such profound things that we've never heard before. Things similar to our Old Testament prophets. And so Nicodemus became one of those seekers. But being in the minority, what we read is that Nicodemus sought Jesus out at night. Sought Jesus out at night, uh, possibly to go incognito. He didn't need the rest of the religious establishment knowing that he was beginning to doubt some of the things they were saying and starting to wonder about this Jesus. So out of a possible fear of getting caught by his peers, we read of Nicodemus seeking Jesus at night and saying, Teacher, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. At least according to Nicodemus, he is starting to connect the dots. Your miraculous signs, the things that you're doing, at least for me, are proof that God must be with you. Good observation, Jesus says, and then he replies, I assure you, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. Now remember, Nicodemus is a well-educated, well-established, elite member of society. He is certainly not an ignoramus by any means. 
And by being a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have had to have been married. It was a requirement, if you were to be part of that council, to have been a married man. And so Nicodemus would have known about the facts of life. In fact, he would have practiced the facts of life. He probably had children of his own. And so his response to Jesus is quite natural. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? The very imagery is both hilarious and disgusting at the same time. It's something Sigmund Freud probably could have written volumes about. How can an old man crawl back into his mother's womb? Nicodemus' first impression is one that every single one of us would have had if we could have heard this for the first time and not heard this many, many times like we now have. It's shocking. What do you possibly mean? Jesus, I know about the birds and bees. I know about how people are born. What do you mean born again? How do you do that over? I'm a senior citizen. I can't crawl back into my mother's womb. And the very fact that you even suggest that, Jesus, is completely gross. Could you imagine someone overhearing this conversation in the middle of the night if they would have been walking by? Would have probably thought two guys, a bit delusional, had too much to drink at the pub, having a crazy conversation. So Jesus answers Nicodemus' question with, as it seems Jesus so often does, with almost a frustrating riddle. We continue on in verse 5, and Jesus says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So I can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Or so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Do you ever wonder why Jesus talks like this? Why doesn't Jesus just give a straight answer? Why all this absurd born-again language? Eat my flesh, drink my blood, I am the gate, pick up your cross. Even when Jesus told parables, most often it confused people. His disciples one time came to him and said, Why do you always tell stories when you talk to the people? And the reason they came to Jesus and asked that question wasn't because Jesus, it's wonderful. You're telling stories, everyone's getting it. What was happening is he was confusing so many people with his stories that the disciples said, why do you always do that? On another occasion, his disciples came to Jesus after he told one story, once again confusing the crowd, and he came to Jesus and said, please explain this story to us. In this case, please explain the story of the weeds in the field. The stories weren't self-explanatory. 
They often raised more questions than they answered. And the disciples had to come and seek him out to get an understanding of them. Why does Jesus talk like this? What is Jesus talking about? Nicodemus is probably struggling with this. I've risked my reputation with my own peers in the religious establishment to seek this guy out in the middle of the night to try to get a clear answer from him, and now he plays Gollum riddles with me. Not fair, not fair. It isn't fair, my precious. It's not fair, is it, to ask us what it's got in its nasty little pocket it is. What do you mean, Nicodemus asks. And many of us are sitting here today glad Nicodemus asked that question. Have you ever been in a class before where someone else puts up their hand and asks the very question that you were too afraid to ask? You're always so thankful for that person. Just in case it was a dumb question, then you don't get shot down in the process. I was always the one when I was in school to talk a little bit too much in class and uh, ask just a few too many questions. And so whenever people had a question, inevitably I'd get poked or I'd get a little bit of a piece of paper that would say, Steph, ask this question. Sometimes they wanted me to ask the question just to delay the teacher until the bell rang, and I went with those strategies too. But I often was asked to ask the questions in class. We're happy for those who ask the questions. It's nice when someone else puts up their hand and asks the question just in case it's stupid. And then you don't have to get caught with asking the question. And Nicodemus's question does result in a bit of a rebuke from Jesus. As the story continues on in verse 10, this is how we hear Jesus respond when Nicodemus asks him. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me, if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I, te if I tell you about heavenly things? You people are having a hard enough time just understanding the human realm. This realm all around us. With your so-called science and philosophy and theology, you still can't explain some of the deepest questions of life like why are we here what's the purpose of life what's the meaning of life and if you're finding it difficult to understand basic questions of the world how are you possibly going to understand the spirit world how are you possibly going to understand the realm of god see you humans can reproduce human life as you learn in your health classes in school, when a sperm and an egg come together, a woman becomes pregnant, and after nine months, she gives birth to a baby. That's basic biology. That's what it means to be born. You understand that. 
But physical birth is no guarantee to spiritual birth. Physical birth, even in a Christian or Jewish family, is no guarantee of spiritual awakening. The only way one can be awakened to the kingdom of God or come under God's rule, is what the kingdom of God means, is by joining the family. And the only way to do that is by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives new life. It's Holy, the Holy Spirit that awakens our minds. Just as it was God's spirit or wind, God's breath, that was breathed into us, that gave us physical life, so it is God's Spirit, and Jesus here refers again to the wind that blows wherever it will, it is God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit, His breath, His wind, that also can only produce in us spiritual life. In order to be born a second time, in order to be spiritually awakened, you must allow the Holy Spirit to change your thinking. You must allow the Holy Spirit to take a hold of your will, to change your behavior. To become a follower of Jesus requires a surrender to the surgical work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that, that sounds good, but it's also still fairly puzzling. How does one do this? How does one become born of the Spirit? Well, there's a limit to how well we can explain this work of God. No earthly person can properly explain it because no earthly person has fully experienced the reality of God's kingdom. And so we're always grasping to try to explain exactly how this happens. The only one that could possibly explain how this could happen is someone who actually knows God so intimately that he comes from God himself. And that disqualifies all of us. And yet this is exactly where Jesus steps up and proclaims, but I... And one who does know God in those terms. Again, we're running into one of those maddening statements that Jesus made that just drove the religious leaders crazy. For only I, only I, no other, the Son of Man, have come to earth and will return to heaven again. In other words, only I can really explain this process. Now Nicodemus is faced with a real problem. The problem ultimately every single one of us is faced with, which is exactly who is this one standing before me right now. Who is this guy proclaiming to have come from heaven, 
to earth, proclaiming to understand how people can be born of the Spirit. Proclaiming to understand and know how God works in people's lives. The issue of deciding who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish is now staring Nicodemus right in the face. And in order to illustrate his mission, Jesus does what we've been seeing John do throughout this whole gospel. He takes Nicodemus back to Nicodemus' scriptures. Nicodemus is a religious leader. He knows the scriptures, probably got most of it memorized. Part of the Sanhedrin. And now Jesus not only makes a statement about coming from heaven, but makes this crazy statement by taking the holy text that Nicodemus knew so well and points to it and says, that very text that you study and know so well is all about me. Let me just give you one more example. As we've seen so many in the Gospel of John already. So Nicodemus, remember when Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole? Remember that story? Everybody in Israel was set free by a great work of God, a work of the Holy Spirit. They were saved by the Egyptians. They came out into the wilderness. And yet, after everything God did for them, they complained continuously. They complained about the food. They complained about the lack of water. They complained about the food that I gave them. They, 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 they uh, complained about the leaders that I provided for them. They complained about everything that they wanted. They even longed to go back to Egypt. And so finally, I had enough of it. And I sent poisonous snakes out into the camp and they began to bite the people and the people started to die and this was my curse against this grumbling and complaining nation. And then the very leaders that the people complained about in an act of grace interceded and prayed for my mercy on the people. And so I told Moses, I said, Moses, take a snake Make a bronze snake, put it up on a staff, hold it up and start marching through the camp and announcing that everyone who looks upon the bronze snake on the staff, if they've been bitten, will be saved and healed. You remember that story, Nicodemus? You should know the story. I mean, you are an Old Testament, or I guess for you, a scriptural scholar, are you not? Well, as Moses lifted the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the son of man, must be lifted up on a pole. Once again, all of your Old Testament scriptures, stories, sayings, laws, everything like that one was all a pointer to me. That whole story in Numbers 21 with the bronze snake on the staff, was just a foreshadowing of the cross. And after retelling the story, Jesus says, I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up on a pole so that everyone who believes in me 
will have eternal life. Another Old Testament story becomes a picture of Jesus. And where the bronze serpent could only save people for a few more years, when those people looked at the bronze serpent, yes, it healed them, it somehow miraculously took the poison out of their system, but it wasn't eternal life, it was a temporal salvation. It merely pointed. The cross of Christ that the bronze serpent pointed to is the gateway to a life in God's kingdom that will never end. How is one born again? How does this work of the Holy Spirit happen? It happens by the cross. It happens by me, Jesus, Even though, like Moses, people have spit upon me, mocked me, ridiculed me, rebelled against me, complained against me, I, in my mercy, will allow myself to be lifted up on the cross so that whoever looks upon me, whoever believes in me, will have the poison of sin sucked out of their system by my Holy Spirit so that they could have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Probably the most well-known verse in the Bible the most well-known verse in the Bible that comes right after the retelling of the story of Moses lifting up the serpent in the desert. And so the next time you see the snake on the pole, by the way, you might have recognized on the front of the bulletin, I simply took that symbol right off the Vancouver uh, ambulance what we see on the side of the ambulances in Vancouver. The snake on the pole has become the medical symbol. It comes from the scriptural story. It's a symbol of healing because those that looked upon the snake were healed. And so every time you see an ambulance go by, every time you see that snake on a pole, it should remind you of John 3.16. Because it's what John 3.16 is referring to. And though we are very grateful to our health services. And the wonderful work that they can provide for us in restoring us to health. Just like the bronze serpent was able to restore people to health in Moses' day. We also recognize the limits of our medical services. Just like the limits of the snake on the staff in Moses' day. That we need something greater. That our doctors and nurses and hospitals and medical infrastructure can only be a pointer to something much greater. God called us to be healed. And yet the snake on the staff could only do it 
temporarily. The doctors, the first responders can only do it temporarily. We need something greater. Medicine, science, physicians, technology, they can only help so much. They are not infallible. My wife and I found this out very personally when just a few months back my father-in-law passed away. Someone who for the last nine months of his life continually went into the doctor, complained of all kinds of chest pain, complained about aching bones all over, uh, the doctors could not seem to find anything wrong with him. They sent him for test after test, checks, chest x-rays. They uh, sent him for physiotherapy. Uh, they did blood work on him over and over, all kinds of things. Could not find anything wrong with him. Eventually, they just thought this must be a severe case of depression. Only to the day before he died. Call the family together and say, whoops. We actually just discovered that he has full-blown lung cancer, and we don't think he'll make it through the night. And he died the next day. Our medical infrastructure, as good as it is, is not perfect. And we should not expect perfection from them. They're merely, at the best, a pointer to something greater. And certainly, the medical profession cannot produce the deeper and more important things of life. The medical profession cannot produce forgiveness, cannot produce peace, joy, fulfillment, meaning, Certainly, though some renegades are trying, they cannot produce eternal life. Those are only things that belong to the Creator God. Something that my father-in-law never seemed to find. Even though he went to church all of his life, even though my father-in-law was born, we don't know if he ever was born again. We must put our hope and faith and trust ultimately in Christ and the cross. That's the only way for salvation. It's the only guarantee that truly is infallible. It's the only way to find true life. Nicodemus was a religious leader, a religious leader of the one true God who served in the highest office. But that didn't make him born again. I could go to seminary as I have. I could get a doctorate in theology and in preaching. And I could serve as a pastor all of my life. It doesn't mean that I'm born again. You could go to church all of your life like my father-in-law did. It doesn't 
make you born again. Simply repeating a formulaic prayer after a message about Jesus doesn't make you born again. You could sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It doesn't make you born again. You could even die the death of a martyr. And it doesn't necessarily make you born again. What makes you born again is one and one thing alone, and that is pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. I'm going to ask you a question. When you were born, just think back to the time you came out of your mother's womb. I know you all remember it well. When you think back to that time, how much did you help your mom in the process? Not a whole lot. In fact, you probably were even a little bit of a hindrance because you probably wanted to stay inside and not come outside. It was your mother who did all of the work. It's the same way with the Holy Spirit when we're born again. The Holy Spirit does the work. All that we do is surrender to the process. All that we do. With those people that were bitten by snakes and were dying and Moses walked through, the only thing they did was have to believe Moses and look at the snake. That's it. Just trust and believe. Now, you can refuse to do that. You could have been bitten by the snake and Moses could have walked through the camp and as you're dying there, Moses could have marched and said, anyone who looks upon the snake will be healed. It's God's word. And you could have laid there and said, oh, what a bunch of stupid superstition. I don't believe looking at some snake's going to heal me from poison. I'm not going to do that. That's dumb. I'm going to try to suck the poison out of my arm myself. And you could try to like save yourself and that and you die. So, so you could try on your own. But how you're born again is simply by surrendering to what God's done. He's done it. He's saved you. He's provided the remedy. He's provided the antidote. He's died on the cross for you in Jesus Christ. And it's now choosing to align yourself with him. To allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of birthing us. And when the work of birthing us starts to take place, what happens? The Holy Spirit begins to kill our bitterness. Kill our grumbling. Kill our need to control everything and everyone. Kill our divisive spirit. Kill our need to keep up appearances. Kill our need for rules. Kill our disappointments. And like a phoenix rising from the ashes, we become born again. This is what John was already getting us ready for in the prelude of his gospel. Back in John chapter 1, we read, To all who believed in him, Jesus, and accepted him, Jesus, he gave the right to become Children of God. They are reborn. Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan. But a birth that comes from God. 
And now Jesus here in chapter 3 tells us exactly how you allow that birth to take place. See, we're in this weird day where if people are boys and claim to be girls, then we say they're girls. Or vice versa, no matter what their DNA says about them. But in the same way, there are many in the church who claim to be born again when their spiritual DNA says otherwise. It doesn't matter what you claim. You claim you're a girl, but you're really a boy. It doesn't really matter what you say with your mouth, just like it doesn't really matter what you claim if you say you're a Christian. It doesn't necessarily mean you are if your DNA doesn't show you to be one. It's not through outward things like attendance or giving or serving or studying or speaking or singing that makes one born again. To be born again means that there is an ongoing change in your life because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That you are born as a new child, you are children of God, and you begin to grow into maturity. That's what it means to be born again. Your allegiance now belongs to Christ. Your hope is not on temporal fixes like the bronze serpent but eternal fixes, like the cross. And when we tell Jesus that he can have our life, and we become born again by the Spirit, we read about the new DNA that we have. Paul uses the illustration of fruit. You could call it fruit, you could call it DNA, whatever you want. But Paul says this is what a born again, a born of the spirit person begins to look like. These are the character traits. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And when that new heart and new spirit is given to you, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, we read in Galatians. Love. Joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the DNA of one who's born again. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified him. I'll read the same passage just so it really sinks in again from the message. The Holy Spirit, when we are born again, 
brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, an exuberance about life, and sincerity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life. We're able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good. It's crucified on the cross. Let's pray. We come before you, Jesus Christ, and we thank you so much for what you have done for us on the cross. And the many pictures and illustrations you have provided for us to give us no excuse, to tell us the story again and again. Lord, I pray that we will be people who surrender our allegiance to you. That we say to you, you are our Lord, you are our God. We look to you upon the cross, what Jesus Christ has done, and we put our total hope and trust and faith in that. Forgive us of our sins. Give us new life. Begin to produce the new spiritual fruit and DNA in us. Save us from our sins and grant us eternal life. Lord Jesus, I pray that for each and every one of us here, that will be our pledge and that will be the life that we live. And Lord, if we have not yet done so, I pray that we will decide to publicly proclaim that commitment to you through the act of baptism. Lord Jesus, if we have not yet stood before your people and said yes to you, I will show my commitment to Jesus Christ that I have been born again by his spirit, and I will illustrate that through the waters of baptism. Lord, I pray that you will call those people even now to step forward, send the church an email, to come talk to one of the pastors and say, I want to make that decision. I want to surrender myself to Jesus, and I want to show that dedication through my baptism. A baptism which in many ways represents the birthing process. Coming up and out of the water as the water is broken and new life is birthed.